Welcome to the podcast for Resurrection Lutheran Church in Fredericksburg, Texas. I'm Pastor Garrett Buvinghausen. Today we had our weekly Bible study. It is Tuesday, June 16th, 2020, and on Tuesday mornings we have our Bible study at 10 a.m., and uh, we are back to having matins, so hopefully y'all are enjoying the postings for matins in the mornings, and uh, uh, now you will also enjoy, hopefully, the Bible studies that we're doing as well. Um, a little bit extra um, encouragement, a little bit extra um, content there for your uh, piety, for your growth in the faith, things like that. Well, today we kept on in our study of Hebrews, and we looked at the last section of chapter 7, and we moved on to uh, chapter 8, and we got through to chapter 8. You'll even hear I get a little excited because uh, we actually make, make it through, but chapter 8 is fairly short. It's only 13 verses, and most of it is a quotation from Jeremiah. Anyways, um, we made it through. Next week, we'll probably uh, take our time and look a little bit in our review portion. We'll, we'll, we'll go through chapter 8 as well again, and we'll, but before we move on into chapter 9, just to get a few uh, more details, uh, there's a lot of good stuff here in Hebrews that, um, you know, you could take as much time as you want to really flesh out the implications of what's being said. But we are looking at it um, not too cursory and not too shallowly, but we're getting the main idea, and then we're moving on. Um, I feel like last couple weeks we've been a little bogged down, um, but now we are cooking with gas in this one. We, we made it through to chapter 8, through chapter 8, and um, it, was, it, was, it was a nice time. There was good... Discussion had by all uh, for those that commented or questioned or things like that. We had a, we had a good discussion, and uh, hopefully y'all can hear that. Uh, I try to reiterate questions whenever I can, but sometimes I I forget. So forgive me for that. Just turn up your volume a little bit more to hear them. Um, and uh, with that, that's about all I have <laughs> as the preface. So I pray that you will enjoy the um, Bible study that we held today which is uh, on Hebrews chapter 7, verses 20 through uh, chapter 8, verse 13. Before we start, let's begin with a word of prayer. So, the Lord be with you. Let us pray. O oh God, You make the minds of your faithful to be of one will. Grant that we may love what you have commanded and desire what you promise. That among the many changes of this world, our hearts may be fixed where true joys are found. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Um, Okay, um, so I promise we will get through Hebrews chapter 7 today. We will even get through chapter 8 today. No. Oh. <laughs> dare? Dare me? All right. 
Um, they're going to be short enough to where I'll get through fast enough to where we can have comments and questions. More towards the end. Um, no comment on that. Um, we will. This, this will be a little more streamlined, I guess. If y'all would, um, well, here, I'll, I'll pass these out. Uh, these, these are a few handouts. commentary on Hebrews chapter 8, uh, and so we'll get to these, so just hold on to them. They're kind of interesting. I know that there's some Latin and Greek, and I don't know half of it, but it's interesting at least. We'll see about it. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about those things and get to them, but let's pick up where we left off um, and just do a quick, and I mean quick, uh, review of uh, what we talked about last time, which was Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 19. And with that, I will, I will read that so we can get caught up on that. Um, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 19, reads... Um, now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical uh, priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for, for another priest to, to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the, one whom, for, for the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has, has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, um, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement, but concerning bodily descent, uh, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of, of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment has, is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So this whole chapter uh, 7 and, um, you know, even before that, Melchizedek was mentioned. We talked a little bit about who Melchizedek is. He's the king of righteousness, the king of Salem, the king of peace. Or the, he's the king of righteousness and, and the king of peace, right? Yeah, the king of Salem. And we see here that there's a switch, right? We've been talking about the switch, and I won't belabor it too much, but the point is 
is that uh, Jesus now is our great high priest in the order of Melchizedek, and this supplants, it supersedes the, the Levitical priesthood. And remember who the audience is. The audience is a Jewish community. Uh, the idea was that it might be something similar to what happened in Galatia, with the Galatians, the Judaizers, the ones who said, yeah, Jesus is the Messiah, but we also need the law, we also, in the sense of the ceremonial law. We need to go back to the temple. We need to keep making sacrifices. We need to have this priesthood to make sacrifice for the sins of the people. We need all these things because the law of God is good, right? So the author of Hebrews is making his point that there was a need for a different priest in the order of Melchizedek because the order of Aaron had not delivered perfection to God's people. The law demands perfection, right? It demands that we be perfect, but we are not able to, right? And so this would be very challenging to the Jewish mindset at the time because that's what they would hang their hat on. Right? They would hang their hat on the external trappings of the temple, the, uh, the blood, blood of goats and bulls sprinkled in the holy place. And it was, in some senses, too much for them to just give that up. Right? Um, so with that, we see this very succinct argument by the author of Hebrews. Um, and he's using Psalms, uh, Psalm 110, verse 4, which he quotes, right? You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, uh, <laughs> this is a proof text, a sedis doctrinae uh, in, in the Latin. I only know that because there was a professor at the seminary who would rail on us all the time about the Sedes Doctrinae. The Sedes Doctrinae is a proof text. It's a proof text like what we would use from uh, Romans, which Paul uses Genesis to say, you know, that Abraham believed and it was accounted to him as righteousness. That's a proof text for justification by grace through faith. Right? It's that's proof text for us to say, you know, 1 Peter 3.21 says, for this for this corresponds to baptism. Baptism now saves you. That's what we got against the Baptists, right? We can say, yes, baptism does save, right? It's God's work through this thing. This right here is a, is a proof text for the priesthood of Christ. That in Psalm 110, um, there, it is addressed to, it is a Psalm of David. And David, was he in the Levitical line? Was he a descendant of Levi? Who was he a descendant of? David. No, David was a descendant of which patriarch? Which tribe? Which, which kingly tribe? Judah. Judah. Yeah, he was, a, he, was a, he was a descendant of Judah. This is addressed to a descendant of David. There was, like we talked about last time, there was no king that could be priest. A king could not be king and priest at the same time. So this is addressed to a, the kingly line. And so this is, he's using this as the proof of saying that one day, 
someone from the line of Judah, not Levi, would be the high priest. And that is fulfilled in Christ. Okay? And um, let me see here. There is also this mention here um, in verse 12. Hebrews 7, verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Right? For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has, even ser has ever served at the altar. Right? As we said before, no one in the line of Judah serves as a priest according to the law. Right? For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. He's saying, you're absolutely right. No descendant of Judah should be a priest. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, though, right? Melchizedek is this person that just pops up out of nowhere that we talked about um, a lot earlier in chapter 7, where he pops up, he has no genealogy, he has no father with whom to say, I am the descendant of Levi, therefore I have a right to be this priest in this priestly class. We don't know who his parents are. We don't even know how he died, right? He just pops up somewhere and then he's gone until Psalm 110, where God is giving this divine declaration of a new priest will rise in the order of Melchizedek. And who is like this Melchizedek that we hold to today? Who is the great high priest now? Jesus. Jesus is the great high priest. He is like Melchizedek in that he goes on forever as far as we know. But we have a stronger attestation that Christ is the eternal high priest because we know that he rose from the dead. He defeated death. Now he is risen and ascended to the right hand of the Father. Right? Um, and with that, so the law demands perfection. The Levitical priesthood could not deliver that perfection. Therefore, God had to make good on his promise by establishing the great high priest who is Christ so that we have this great hope, right? Um, verse, verses uh, 18 and 19. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness for the law made nothing perfect. The law is perfect and good, but it didn't achieve the perfection that God demands, right? So he had to, according to his good and gracious will, do something more to ensure that people had that line to him, that connection to him. And it says, for, um, but on the other hand, a better hope, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And that hope is embodied in Jesus, right? He is hope personified. He is hope made flesh, okay? That was pretty good for introduction. Um, now, we're going to move on because we've kind of done that to death for now. Let's, let's, let's move on to verses um, 20 through 28. And I'll read that real quick here. Um, it was not without an oath, and it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath, 
by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and, and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood, his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the utmost, to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Right? Man, he is driving that point home tremendously, right? Um, the point being that with the old priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, no one had to swear an oath, right? There would be the ordination, and that would be good according to the Levitical code. But now, to supersede that, God has sworn that he is the guarantor of this greater covenant with an oath. And God, when he swears... Like we talked about, think back in chapter 6. God makes this oath according to himself. There is no one higher than him. He swears according to his own name, this will be done. And it is done. It's done in Jesus Christ. That when Christ was sacrificed for our sins on the cross, he made full atonement for all people, for all times and places. Right? And there's this um, part here for... Uh, something from my study Bible, and if y'all have a Lutheran study Bible, uh, they, I love this thing, because it has quotes from Luther all over the place, and uh, it's just great. Luther says about verse 25 here, uh, verse 25, consequently, he is able to save to the, to the, to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Luther says about this verse, if there by, sorry, if here by faith we do not take hold of Christ, who is sitting at the right hand of God, who is our life and our, and our righteousness, and who makes intercession for us, miserable sinners, before the Father, then we are under then we are under the law and not under grace, and Christ is no longer a Savior. Then he is a lawgiver. Then there can be no salvation left, but sure despair and eternal death will follow. But I am baptized, and through the gospel I have seen 
And through, the, and through the gospel, I have been called to a f fellowship of, of righteousness and eternal life. To the kingdom of Christ in which my conscience is at peace. Where there is no law, but only the forgiveness of sins, peace, quiet, happiness, salvation, and eternal life. He really knew how to preach the gospel, didn't he? That is what this passage grants to us, that in the days of old, with these sacrifices from the priests, they would atone for the people's sins. But they had to keep coming back year after year after year to have the Passover, the, the Feast of Booths, Tabernacles. You know, they had all these different feasts. And the priests would even make sacrifices every single day on behalf of the people. If you look at uh, the Gospel of Luke, Zechariah, right, uh, John, John the Baptist's father, he was a priest in the temple. And the angel visited him while he was in the temple making the sacrifice for the people for that day. It was a daily thing, day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out, sacrifices all the time, morning and evening. As if it really did something, right? As, as, as if their work was what merited the salvation for all people. But now we have a better priest who is Christ, who has made the sacrifice for all time, once and for all, so that we would have peace, right? Um, any questions about this? Man, I'm blowing through this, aren't I? Um, Any questions or comments? Is that comforting for y'all? I'll ask that question. Is this a comforting thing that we now have, well, uh, we, I think in one of our midweek services, we would have this thing where it was a responsory where I would, you know, chant, you know, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Jesus Christ for the propitiation of our sins, right? You know, he was delivered up to death. He was delivered for the sins of the people, for all people, right? That, that is what we proclaim when we gather for the divine service. And in the divine service, this Gottesdienst, God is serving us. That we receive the benefits of God not by the work of a pastor or a group of pastors or men in general or whatever, but by God's work coming to us. God does the work by coming to us in his word and in his sacraments so that we would have that peace. Right? Um, I'm trying to think here. There is some interesting things here before we move on. Um, I do want to point this out that Dr. Kleinig makes a point in his commentary because he, I, I like it in his commentary in each section. He, of course, gets into the Greek and he gets into the context and the structure and everything of the passage. He gets into the analysis, which is what we talk about most. But then at the end of each section, he talks about reception and application. How has the Lutheran church, not just the Lutheran church, but the church of all time, used this passage if they've used the passage at all? How has this passage shaped our 
lives as Christians within the church and the workings of the church, right? Um, he does say that the most profound influence of this passage has been in shaping the congregation's worship. But y'all didn't know that, huh? I didn't know that, so. Um, for the whole of the divine service revolves around the presence of the risen, exalted Christ. Right? Um, when we look at the divine service, I mean, first of all, how do we begin a service? With the invocation, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. When did we get that name in its fullness? I'll give you a hint. It's at the end of Matthew, Matthew 28. Right? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them uh, in, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you until the very end of the age. When did Jesus say that? Before he died? After he died and was risen, before his ascension, right? That the words that we first speak are, these, are the words of the risen Christ. And everything after that comes, you know, I'm just going through setting three here. We can confess our sins and receive absolution for those sins because of the crucified, risen, and ascended, and exalted Lord Christ who forgives our sins. And I can just keep on going. The Kyrie, Lord have mercy. He can have mercy on us because our sins have been forgiven by his blood shed for us, right? We can sing glory to God on high and peace on earth, goodwill toward men because of Christ who has redeemed us. And, you know, I'll ad nauseum. We can just go on from there, on and on and on. We can say the Lord's Prayer because we are now God's children. We can now call God our Father because of who Christ is and what he has done for us in our baptism, right? Very interesting, very interesting that Jesus continually intercedes before God the Father on behalf of all believers for all time, forever. He is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, right? This surpasses anything prescribed for the uh, for the Levitical priesthood and provides true and lasting comfort for all who for all who for all who believe. But like Luther said, right, that if you do not believe that Christ does these things, if you do not believe that he forgives sins, then he becomes a um, then he becomes a lawgiver like many Christians during his time thought. The Roman Catholic Church in Luther's time, one of their main battering rams against Luther was that Jesus was the most perfect lawgiver. And Luther kept saying, you just don't get it. You just don't get it. He came not to abolish the law, for sure, but he came to fulfill the law. By his perfect sacrifice. Right? He intensifies the law. Yes, he does. Right? He says, you have heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you that anyone who says fool to his brother is liable to the council for murder. 
You've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, anyone who looks at another woman with lustful intent in his heart has committed adultery in his heart. He holds us to the full weight and measure of the law, and then he takes it upon himself, and he bears it for us. The punishment that we deserve, he takes it all to himself. And now that that punishment has been meted out on him, he has risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, and now this is what the writer of Hebrews is really getting at with all this, speak of the temple and everything like that, right? That he now intercedes for us on, in front of God the Father, showing the perfect sacrifice, which is what? A bull, a lamb, a goat? Yes. Him, himself. He shows himself saying this is the sacrifice that has been given for the world, right? Good stuff. <laughs> Any questions, concerns about this? Um, does it concern anybody? Before we move on, this last question. Does it concern anybody that God worked in such a way that was outside the bounds of the law? Does it bother you that God worked outside the bounds of the law that he established? He made the Levitical priesthood, right? He decreed these things to be a statute forever, like he says, right? Right. Does it bother anybody that God works outside those boundaries to establish Jesus as our great high priest? No? no? Doesn't bother you at all. That's a, well, I'm just curious. Does it bother you? Because, because I would imagine that the audience that was there listening to this preacher would have been kind of squirming a little bit in their seats. You know, this is probably something that they just thought, oof, this is hard. This is a hard teaching because I thought that the law was perfect and good and then God works outside of it. Does that bother y'all now that I put it that way? Not to take your comfort from you and to give you some uncertainty. If God is almighty, we can judge. Right. Exactly. He is almighty. But more than that, I'll say this more than that, and I'll get to you real quick. That like more than more than him being almighty and all powerful and all knowing, he is all merciful. He is all loving. He is just. He doesn't act outside of these things arbitrarily. He acts outside of this specific law for our good because of our weakness, not because what he has established in the law is not perfect. It is perfect. The law is not the problem. We're the problem, right? So for our sake, he works outside of this thing to grant us a greater hope, right? Is that Yeah, if he didn't work outside the law, you know, we, we would have been condemned. Did you have something to say? Sorry. Or did I just wash over it? <laughs> uh, the woman caught in adultery is a different issue to pardon the power of the sovereign, but uh, she was not stoned. Right. And power and pardon. Now, Kista uh, predates the law. 
That's true. That's exactly what we went through the last few times, or the last times we talked about this, is that before the Levitical priesthood was even a thing, when, according to tradition, Levi was still in the loins of Abraham, Melchizedek was the one through whom received the sacrifice of Abraham. Right? Yeah, you're right. It predates the, he predates the law. So yeah. So he works outside these things for our good and according to his good and gracious will. Um, make sense? Any questions? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, no, yeah, please. So, uh, I'm looking at verse 27, and the last, the last few words of that verse says, when he offered himself, if he sacrificed for their sins once for all, when he offered himself, he yes. is Jesus. It's not capitalized. And then... I'm thinking God offered his son. Yeah. So <laughs> I know, know Jesus and the Father, the Trinity. Yeah. But here it seems like Jesus offered himself <laughs> rather than God offered his son. Right. And I'm just trying to make it all work, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is true. Jesus offered himself. Not because... Well, I'll, I'll, I'll say this. Jesus offered himself. We do have in our minds constantly John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Right? That, whoever, that whosoever should believe in him should not die but have everlasting life. But the thing is, is that Jesus also says, I and the Father are one. I do not do my will, but the Father's will, right? And Jesus is obedient to that will. He is perfectly obedient where we cannot be. And he is perfectly, what is it? If you think of Abraham and Isaac, right? Isaac was perfectly obedient in that sense. Because think about it. Abraham, how old was he? Over 100, let's just say that. Uh, right, but Isaac was obedient. Yes. He could have he could have pushed his father away down the hill and said, "Forget this, I'm out of here." Right? He could have said, "No way, Dad, I am not." It's like, but he kept asking, "Where's the sacrifice? Uh, where's the sacrifice, Father?" Uh, it's like God will provide a sacrifice, my son. Right? It's like it's not an answer, Dad. Come on, you know. It's 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 uh, what's what's going on here? But then he bound Isaac, and Isaac let him. Um, so, yeah, but then we have to understand, I guess, are you still trying to reconcile how Jesus offers himself? No, uh, I, I guess what I'm saying is, okay. you know, it's very, it, you know, to understand the Trinity is really, it's a mystery, it's a mystery. And, and you know, it's, it's God, one and the same, you know, the Son's being offered. Yeah. Right. Yeah, the love of God. Yeah. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? It is. Yeah. The distinctions that we make, but also 
the understanding that we have of how God works according to his will, the economy of the Trinity, the workings of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all working together to achieve the same will of God. Uh, it's mind-boggling, but it is very profound in how by Jesus being obedient to the Father as the Son, he is offering himself up for our sakes because his love is the same love that the Father has for us and that his will for us is the same will that the Father has for us that we should not perish but have everlasting life right so think of it in that sense yeah the God the Father and the Holy Spirit they're all on the same page yeah they're all on the same page they're all working toward the same end right um any other questions before we move on to chapter 8? We're going to get through chapter 8. I promise you. We will get through chapter 8. Because um, really chapter 8 is mainly just a big quotation from Jeremiah. But for good reason. So let's look at chapter 8. If there are no more questions, let's just give everybody a chance. No? Alright, chapter 8. We're going to do it, guys. We're going to do it. Alright. <sighs> chapter 8. Uh, now the point... And what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain." But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I make that I, that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each 
And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, um, we see some interesting things here, okay? Um, what is all this business of copy and shadow? What do y'all think about that? A copy and shadow of the heavenly things. What's he talking about? It's going yeah. to be ended up more in chapter 9. Mm -hmm. Talking about heaven as the earthly temple as being a type of right. what's going on in heaven. The whole Old Testament law relies heavily on types of Christ. Right. That there was all these foreshadowing, kind of, foreshadowing. you know, like something, something greater to come. Like you even see these types of Christs in the Old Testament through the judges, like Samson and King David, but they're not the full picture. Right? Even in the temple, you do see, this is very interesting what the author of Hebrews is doing here, because he says, you know, for when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Now, uh, that is a quote from Exodus 25, verse 40. Why don't we turn to Exodus 25, just to get some context here. Exodus 25, verse 40. Keep your finger or a bookmark there on Hebrews, because we're going back to it. But Exodus 25, verse 40. So we see here that he's literally quoting it. And see that you, this is God speaking to Moses, right? And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain, on Mount Sinai, right? Um, so God gives a pattern for the tabernacle for the, uh, the tent of dwelling, right? The dwelling place of God, where the Ark of the Covenant is. And if you read through Exodus, where he's establishing all this, what is he talking about? He's talking about golden lampstands. God really likes pomegranates, you know? Because um, he literally says all these things, right? He says things like, you know, um, he likes acacia wood, apparently. Uh, you know, you shall make a table of acacia wood, and, and you know, the golden lampstands, you shall make a, a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work, its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be a one piece of it. You know, you see these, these blossoms from the almonds, you know, like, uh, you see pomegranates, you see almond blossoms, 
You see these beautiful things made with gold and precious stones. And this, I think, is a good, uh, is, is exactly what should be gone to when you start to talk about, you know, a, a sanctuary or something like that. Building a sanctuary or a nice place, you know, of course you can't always afford the nicest of things, but the place where God is dwelling, God likes beautiful things. Um, he likes, and, I'm, and we are very blessed to have beautiful stained glass, and we have a nice space here for these sorts of things to, to not necessarily add to what's going on, but to engage our senses in such a way as to show God's beauty, not just in his word, but in all creation. Right? Um, we see here that there is a type a copy and shadow, that God commanded Moses to see what was shown to him. God had Moses, Moses was a visionary prophet, right? There are some prophets that would have the word of the Lord come to them and tell them what needed to be proclaimed, but God showed Moses what was to be proclaimed. He showed Moses what needed to be done as far as the tabernacle. And there's this thinking, you know, that... Um, there's an interesting thing here where um, God commanded Moses to see. Um, God not only should, t tells him how, he doesn't just give him written instructions or you know, spoken instructions, but he shows them. He says this is what it's supposed to look like. He shows him what the heavenly temple, the heavenly tabernacle, was to be, uh, or is... He showed him what the, what, what the heavenly temple looks like and then how that was to be recreated. Obviously not perfectly, but recreated so that we would know that God the Most High is dwelling in this place, right? Not just because we think it's pretty, not just because we think, oh, these are nice things that people can, you know, really appreciate. This is what God would have us do. Um, which is why in some churches you'll see they have the menorahs, the golden lampstands on either side of the altar. And, you and, and there's like some representations of these things that we hold on to because we are one in the same church, right? We are one in the same faith, one in the same people that are the people of the covenant. We are now the people of the new covenant, right? We don't do these things because we have to. But we do these things because, hey, they are pleasing to God in some way, and they're also beneficial to us to help, uh, to help us understand what is taking place here, right? Um, and uh, you see that the tabernacle is therefore meant to reproduce the heavenly sanctuary, invisible to the unaided human eye. Um, he's given Moses this directive to make all things according to the model that has been shown you on the mountain. And um, in some ways, uh, we see here, let me see, I'm just trying to get this right here. So, okay, this translates to the priests as well. Because what the priests would do on earth in the, in the Levitical priesthood, what the priests would do on earth 
was also a copy and shadow of what was taking place in heaven, right? That Jesus, now that he is our great high priest, doesn't do something different than what the priests would do in the Old Covenant. He does it perfectly where they could not. Right? Does that make sense? That Jesus, now that he is our high priest who has risen and ascended to the heavenly sanctuary, wherever that is, I'm not going to get into spatial terms here, but he is seated at the right hand of power, making intercession for us continually with himself as the perfect sacrifice, doing the work the Levitical priesthood could never achieve. They would only be able to do an imperfect type of what was shown in that covenant. Isn't that amazing? That Jesus does this for us where our ancestors could not. Um, so going back to Hebrews here, to finish this up for today, we see here that um, there, is, there is a type and shadow going on in the Old Covenant. Now it is fulfilled in Christ. Um, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> after talking about this copy and shadow of heavenly things, the author of Hebrews kind of goes on for, to something completely different. Kind of like, kind of like with um, Monty Python, you know. And now for something completely different. They go on to something else, right? He's going on to something different. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better. Since it is enacted on better promises, Right? Um, that these promises are made for the people. Um, and it's not just like it was with the Old Covenant, where these promises are made, and in some way, God fulfills them. He promised to bring his people out of the land of Egypt. He promised to establish them in the promised land, which he did. But he promised them even more on top of that to say that you will be my people for all time. He made the promise to Abraham that your descendants will number, will be as great a number as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the beach, right? That he makes these promises, and to some degree he fulfills them in the old covenant. But in this new covenant, he not only promises it, he fulfills it. And he delivers that promise to us, right? Um, and we know this from Jeremiah, right? Which is the rest of the quotation there. Um, Jeremiah's prophecy has been fulfilled in Christ. That um, he announces all these things for, for, for his people who believe. His main concern is, uh, let me see, the author of Hebrews, his main concern um, is with what this prophecy of Jeremiah says about the basis for the new covenant. God's merciful treatment of his sinful people and his plan to remove their sins so completely 
that he would never, ever remember them. Um, any longer. That your sins will be remembered no more. That's the promise. And that is the promise fulfilled in Christ. Okay? Um, let me see here. And there's some, you know, I handed out these things from, uh, uh, from the commentary, these, these handouts. These are just some things to keep in mind. Uh, it's kind of interesting. I think it's interesting, at least. You can just hold on to them or not if you want. I mean, it's up to you. But um, figure eight, you see how these uh, different translations of Hagia, which is like holy in five related versions, you can kind of see the differences there. If you have the... The English Standard Version and how that differs between the New King, the New King James, the King James, the Luther Bible, and the Vulgate, uh, which is the Latin, right? And how these things look compared to each other. To kind of give you a fuller sense of what it talks about when um, it's talking about these different verses of the holy places, and on in um, chapter 9, uh, 10 and 13. Figure 9, the other handout, is uh, the relationship between the divine service in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, according to the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Article 24, um, which at some point in time, I would like to have another study, maybe we can make it a Wednesday or Thursday study or something like that on the confessions, uh, going through different books and the the Lutheran Confessions would be great, I think, um, to, to really see what it is I have to subscribe to as a pastor and what it is that y'all would benefit from to know, right? Um, but Article you know, 24 of the Augsburg Confession, you see these different things, um, types and uh, the image, right? The body of good things, how they translate over between the Old Testament and the New Testament service, that this is one thing I'll leave you all with for today because we're almost done here. I told you. I told you we'd get through chapter 8. Um, is that now, in the divine service, in the place where God comes to his people in all places, not just here at Resurrection Lutheran Church in Fredericksburg, but in all places where his Word is taught and his sacraments are given according to his word. In these places, God comes and serves his people, not because of what the pastor does, not because of what the people do, but what Jesus has done as our great high priest and what he continues to do in the heavenly sanctuary at the right hand of the Father, not in a spatial place where he can't come down at all, that's, that's what some Christians believe that, I won't get too far into it. Some, some Christians believe certain things about Jesus saying, he's in the heavenly sanctuary. He can't come down here because flesh and blood is now in heaven. To which the Lutherans say, that's blasphemy. You're saying that God the Son, who yes, now is flesh and blood in heaven, is not all powerful, is not all present. 
He is. We do not ascend to where he is spiritually in eating and drinking his body and blood. He comes down to us as our great high priest offering the sacrifice that he gave once for all so that we could eat and drink his body and blood for the forgiveness of our sins and the strengthening of our faith. That is how he serves us. Thanks be to God. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing, right? All right. Good, good, good day. We made it. Made it through chapter eight. Um, any final questions, concerns, comments? I have a yeah. comment. Yeah. This copy and shadow. Yeah. We're referring to the sanctuary and the worship, but my mind goes off someplace else. Okay. Everything about Jesus is there. He had a hard time explaining himself. He said, I am the shepherd. I am the door. I am the way. I am the vine. He had to try to give us pieces of a sure. shadow and a copy. We won't see all of it until we're with him in heaven. Right. But he's giving us all these little pieces right. to tell us who he is, what he does. Right. The parables, like, the kingdom of heaven is like such and such and such and such. Did you have something to say? Well, I was pretty much what Audrey was saying. It's just we, we can only understand in simple human terms the reality that hides behind that veil of death that separates us from, you know. That's right, yeah. Yeah, we, we, are, we, are, we can't see things perfectly. Yet, when it comes to what happens, and, and, I'll, and I'll stick with something concrete, right? Because I could talk about different situations and circumstances in your life where you have to bear whatever cross you have to bear, you have to bear, you have to bear, whatever, and how God is with you, helping you along the way. That can be individually. But for everybody, for all Christians that believe what happens on the altar is that it is the true body and blood of Christ, that someone may come in here and say, I just see bread and wine, to which we can cleverly respond to something like, do your eyes not see what your ears hear? Jesus says, the Lord of heaven and earth says, take, eat, this is my body. This is my blood. We imperfectly in by ourselves only see bread and wine. But by faith, the promises of his body and blood are delivered to us through those means, right? that we eat and drink a foretaste of the feast that is to come. That, you know, he can talk about, I am the good shepherd, I am the door, I am these things, you know, that you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood or else you have no part with me, right? You have all these things that he says, and even and people say, these are hard sayings, what are we supposed to do with them? But with eyes of faith, we see these things to be true, right? And then once we have gone through that veil of death, or he has come and totally, completely squashed and vanquished sin and death in his second coming, all these things will be revealed to us saying, Amen, Lord, what a great gift. Thank you for sustaining me in this way all my life. Yeah, one last. Did anybody give something to say? Christ uses types. He uses parables or metaphors in scripture. Yep. Adoption, 
Christ is the husband, the church is the bride. Right. Uh, parent John, when the child comes, uh, you won't immediately launch into the Augsburg Confession coming out of the nursery. Well, we might. You <laughs> might. <laughs> we might. But you may be starting with simpler things. Maybe sure. Simpler, Jesus loves me this time. Right. And we, yeah. And, yeah. and then you're going to work up to that. And Christ and God very tenderly deal with us sometimes. That's right. Right. And brings us with simpler pictures. And then up and up and up as we mature toward greater understanding, which will be fulfilled on the other side. But you're fixing to see this Amen. Start with the simple yeah. Things. So in in case y'all didn't hear, he was saying that uh, that um, we have these types, we have these metaphors, we have these parables and things like that, so that we may understand in the same way that you know uh, when we will be welcoming our child into the world, um, that we'll start off with Jesus loves me, this I know. We'll start off with I am Jesus. Who, uh, with I am Jesus's little lamb, things like that, and then go on from there. And we talked, and we saw earlier on in Hebrews how, you know, um, we are given the spiritual milk that we need. God is patient with us where we need, and at the same time, um, we are we're supposed to grow. And it's not that we grow that God grows us through his word um, and, and through his gifts in the sacraments as well. Good stuff. All right. Well, uh, if there are no more questions or concerns, that is, that is all for today. But let's, as we always do, let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses.